you know, you missed out on so much life. And that's exactly what diet culture is. Diet culture is the life thief. It takes away from creating meaning and value and wonderful connection with others because we're so focused on what am I going to eat? How am I going to get rid of it? Going home, not going out. You know, I can only eat. It's so rigid, right? So when we're moving through diet culture and, and leaving diet culture, it's all about giving ourselves unconditional permission of radical self-love. Welcome back, everyone, to Diary of an Empath. So today's guest I'm super excited is Dr. Morgan Francis. She is a licensed clinical psychologist with over 20 years of experience and is one of the nation's leading experts on body image and body image disorders. She has been nationally recognized and frequently featured in the media for her work for empowering women and inspiring positive body image. Dr. Francis, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I've been wanting to do an episode on um, body image for a long time. And I thought that you were the perfect person to do this with. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be on your show. And I'm really excited that we get to dive into body image today. I think it's such an important topic and it's so prevalent right now, I think, with our generation, with social media and, you know, just kind of like the, the stuff that we constantly see online. How did you get into this area of expertise or what made you want to kind of dive into this area? Well, there's my personal and professional life. So I'll go ahead and go with my personal life first. So I struggled with an eating disorder and I really wasn't formally diagnosed until I was in college, but I definitely was struggling prior to, and I had so many pressures, um, happening from all sources, whether it was, you know, familial comments, peer pressure, um, trying to conform, trying to shrink my body size to appear thinner. And I was incredibly miserable. And I always say, you know, there was really only two things on my mind for so many years. It was what am I going to eat and how am I going to get rid of it? And I mean, I could be doing anything and nothing would interfere with those two thoughts. I was very preoccupied with weight and thinness. So finally, when I went into treatment, I started working through some of my traumas, working in through understanding my own eating disorder and my relationship with my body and food. And what I discovered was that there was this material out there on the internet suggesting that I could truly love my body just as it is. And it, that was completely foreign to me because in my mind, it was always, well, I can't love my body until I've lost the weight or until I'm a certain size, right? Or I can fit into whatever piece of clothing. And this was so, so radical for me. So I did some more research and then through my, you know, education, I was really able to focus in on this, this research. And then my dissertation ended up being about cosmetic surgery and body image. And then in my professional life, I ended up working first with men I wasn't really working with women and I worked with men that were struggling with sexual compulsivity. So compulsivity towards, you know, or with, I should say, pornography, masturbation, uh, infidelity, and all type of uh, sexual uh, activity. 
And um, a lot of the men also struggled with their body image. And again, it wasn't an area that was really discussed with men because we think of it just being a women's issue or a white women's issue. And so it was really then that I started, okay, let me get back into this. And then I ended up leaving that practice after being there for 10 years because I have three children and I need to create my own hours and schedule. And um, that's when I started just to primarily focus in on body image. And now I, I do still see men, but um, I primarily see teens, college age girls, and then adults. That's an amazing story. And I find that sometimes we go into the areas within our treatment and careers, especially for those of us that are healers, because oftentimes we have some type of experience with it, or maybe we had a loved one that experienced it. So I'm very proud of you, first of all, for getting through that. And because I know that that definitely can't be an easy journey. And you mentioned to me something that stood out is that you worked with men and that seems to be such an overlooked area. Do you find that it is equal when it comes to men and women who struggle with body image? Or do you find that it's one versus more than the other? I think that there's definitely overlaps. And then there's, you know, parts that are separate, you know, the media, I mean, social media really is is directed towards young teenagers, and female teenagers specifically. But we do know that men are struggling so much, but it's really in the shadows. And it's this toxic masculinity where they have to appear very stoic and uh, financially successful. And they have to really rescue and protect the female. And those types of stories or narratives are really toxic and problematic because men are very emotional beings. Well, the men that I was working with, a lot of their body image was tied up into their sexuality. And so giving them the room to be able to safely explore and discuss their sexuality and its etiology really gave them a safe place. And so they could look, as I talked about sexuality being like a spectrum, right? And so being able to have that safe place for them to talk about it and feel validated and not judged. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think that social media has really stigmatized sexuality. It's stigmatized the way that we look at ourselves. And you're right, there is this toxic masculinity in terms of the stigmas of what a man should look like, what a man should be doing what a man should be sexually admired for versus what women should be sexually admired for. It's like this this stigma of even as a man, you should be having lots of sex or be getting the girls or look mm-hmm. a certain way or have a certain type of job. And as a woman, if you do those things, you're shamed or you're stigmatized. And as a man, if you don't do those things, you're shamed or you're stigmatized. What do you think that the impact of social media has had on body image? Because we live in this generation of filters and social media and models. And, you know, I know for me, I was in the bodybuilding industry too. And Mm -hmm. I did that just, you know, as a hobby and it started out as something fun. I got out of the military. I'm like, I want to do something that can like give me some focus, Mm -hmm. something that I can do for myself. And what I noticed is as I was doing these competitions, I was constantly starting to critique my body in ways that I never had done before. And this was after I had already had my daughter. 
I started noticing my stomach and I'm like, oh, it's not flat enough here or my glutes are not round enough here. And when I was doing these competitions, I would always compare myself to these girls that I saw online, you know, now as an adult and as someone who's been doing this a long time, well, you don't know what diet they were doing. You don't know what drugs they were taking to look like that. You don't know if they've had surgery, but yet we still compare ourselves to all of these people that we see online. So how do you think social media is impacting the way that we look at ourselves? Yes. And thank you so much for sharing that because I have worked with many persons that have been in bodybuilding or in the fitness industry. And there's such a huge disordered eating, you know, body dysmorphia, poor body image. You know, I just like want to wrap my arms around all these men and women that have been in this industry because it can be really damaging to their mental health and their physical health, as you pointed out. So with social media, there's we, we truly know that the research shows that it plays a critical role in damaging a person's self-esteem and their self-worth because of the images that are shown to a young teenage girl. So in October of 2021, I want to say there was basically a leak through the news about Frances Haugen, who was up on like the the headboard of Facebook. And basically what this woman came out with was all the the studies, all the research that Facebook was doing internally, that they were not allowing the public to know. And what Facebook research showed was that actually the algorithm does specifically target young teenage girls. And they know this. And despite whatever you are looking at, they will infiltrate pictures of thin bodies, eating disorder material. And what happens to the psyche of a young teenage girl is that when they start looking at these pictures, they have depressive thoughts, depressive feelings, an increased rate of suicide and self-harm. And it also creates more likelihood for those teenage girls to develop an eating disorder. And the messed up thing is that Facebook, which owns Instagram, knows this and they haven't done anything to stop it. And what they also found out, which I thought was really interesting, is that even when a young girl is looking at these images and she knows that she's feeling bad about herself, she can't stop. She cannot stop looking at them. She continues to scroll through despite her negative feelings of social comparison. So this is extremely problematic. And I don't know if you remember, there was a day when Facebook or Instagram just was not there. It just went off the grid. And a lot of people it, it came out like, yeah, there was like this tech difficulty and that's BS. It was literally the 20, it was the day after Francis Haugen came out with this exclusive information as the whistleblower. Mm. There's no coincidence. So supposedly, you know, the head of Facebook is trying to put protective face guards on there to help these teenagers. But I don't really believe it because now they're developing an Instagram for teenagers. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I know it's crazy. And it's not something, you know, we cannot say, well, parents should be monitoring their children's activity. That's impossible. It's absolutely impossible because you could be monitoring your child's activity on social media and they will still see 
advertisements, programs, wellnesses, you know, wellness diet culture material that's promoting weight loss. So it's, 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 really it's problematic. problematic. It, it's a huge, huge, huge problem. I have a 13 year old daughter myself mm-hmm. and she doesn't have an Instagram, but she begged me for a TikTok, made a whole PowerPoint presentation and everything. <laughs> so I ended up giving in and she does a lot of just anime stuff and I do monitor it, but it is a huge, huge, huge problem. Even the content that I see on Instagram, I had to clean up my library, meaning I had to go through, clean up who I followed, start changing my own algorithms on Instagram. I stopped following the fitness models. I stopped following anything that made me feel bad about myself because I feel like social media can be a benefit if you use it to your benefit. But it's designed to keep you online for as long as possible. It's designed to make money. It's designed to keep you on there. You know, if you look at the the way that it's formatted, it's it's formatted to keep scrolling, similar to how the gambling machines are in Vegas. It it, it continues to trigger those dopamine releases, those good job, you did it, you did it. So, you know, the more they can, it's like a, it's like a dopamine factory. So we don't realize it, but it's really designed to keep you on. So if you're on TikTok, if you're on Instagram, next thing you know, an hour has gone by and you've, you've, you're literally just going down a rabbit hole of shit, of crap. And so I, I really started to try to clean up my library to look at who I'm following. Is this content making me feel good? Is it making me feel bad? Is it adding value to my life? And I tell people it can be a good thing but A, are you on there for the right reasons? What kind of stuff are you exposing yourself to? Clean up your library. Are you learning things or are you feeling bad about the people that you're looking at? Because it is problematic. And you're right. These these teenage girls especially are being exposed to all of these things of you're supposed to look like this. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. And that's a problem. And I remember for me too, even when I was going through the fitness competitions, my daughter was younger and I remember her saying that she didn't like her stomach. And I was like, that's it. I'm done. Because she's watching me look in the mirror saying, my abs aren't showing or I have to do this or I have to do that. And she's seen me as her mom, as somebody who she looks up to. And she's seven, eight years old and having problems with her her own body at seven, eight years old. And that's when I'm like, I'm throwing in the towel and I'm done. And I still at 36, you know, people don't even realize I have my own struggles too. I do. And until this day, I still struggle with some body image issues, mm-hmm. even though I work my ass off. But I really try now to just be like accepting of I'm grateful that I have a body that moves. I'm grateful that that I have a body that can put me on my two feet every day. But we live in a generation of a lot of surgery too. And I know that's something that you mentioned. So why do you think that surgery is so prevalent in this generation? Is, Is it a problem? Is it okay if you want surgery? What are your thoughts on that? I'm not a person that you know, when someone comes to me and says, you know, I want to get my boobs done or I want my nose done. I'm not a therapist that shames them or judge them. I don't think that is effective or helpful. I think it's important to evaluate where this desire is coming from. I also am evaluating, is this body dysmorphia disorder? Meaning that it's a specific feature on a person's body that in their mind appears differently than in reality. And so it can cause a lot of preoccupation of thoughts, um, social withdrawal, mental health disturbances, like anxiety and depression. 
And I've worked closely with several cosmetic surgeons in where I am in Scottsdale. And we've had lengthy discussions about body image because the ones that I've met with really do care about their patients. And in their mind, they're thinking they're helping the patient to feel better about themselves. They're really not thinking of themselves as a villain per se, or Mm -hmm. a part of the problem. There's no question that it's a billion dollar industry and and definitely social media and celebrities plays a critical influence in the desire to want cosmetic surgery. The research that I found when I did my dissertation was it evaluated if a person actually feels better in the long run about their body image post-cosmetic surgery. And to be honest with you, I thought the answer was going to be a clear yes. <laughs> I, was, mm-hmm. I had all my all my research to support why cosmetic surgery improves a person's body image. And you know, I was ready to go down that route. And then what I found in my sample of over 500 participants was actually no, it didn't. In the long run, their, their body image remained the same, if not worse, because they felt it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. Right. So, um, for instance, I worked with, uh, I have a client right now who recently had a rhinoplasty and it took her months and it's still taking her time to like her new nose, even though she hated her previous nose, she really struggles with liking her new nose because she still is uh, dissatisfied with the way it looks. She still feels it should, it should be like this or it should have been like that, or it doesn't look like the image that I brought to him, meaning her cosmetic surgeon. So to say that it improves a person's body image, there's so much still out there to be really uh, investigated and looked at. And I think it's a personal choice. I've had friends who've had cosmetic surgery and it's really improved their life and their confidence. Um, I've had many clients that have had um, breast implant illness that had had their breast implants extracted because of the medical and psychological diseases and illnesses that they were experiencing. And that's been really traumatic for them. And then I've had people who've had cosmetic surgery who are scarred and left traumatized from the botch of the cosmetic surgery. So I've seen it all. So it's really hard for me to say if it's a yes or a no for me, because that's not really my position. My position is to meet the client where they are at and explore what this is really about for them. Because in my work, I explore the relationship that a person has with their body. I don't necessarily only explore the behaviors. I'm looking at the thoughts. I'm looking at the attitudes, the belief system, the feelings, the emotions, the experiences in that lived body that they have. And also I call it, you know, when I'm meeting with someone for the first time, I ask them, you know, what's your relationship with food? It's not, what are you eating today? Or what didn't you eat today? I don't come from a registered dietitian lens. I come from a clinical lens. So I'm always looking at and investigating a relationship versus just the behaviors. And so when you mentioned relationship with food, what do you look for in terms of what's a healthy relationship with food versus something that's maybe unhealthy or where changes need to be made? That's a great question. So uh, too often, so much disordered eating is normalized. So disordered eating could be, I only eat at certain times of the day. I don't eat past 5 p.m. I don't eat until 12 or lunchtime, 12 p.m. Um, I don't allow myself to have certain groups of foods, not have anything to do related to allergies or something like that. Like if you have lactose intolerance, I'm not saying you know you shouldn't eat dairy. 
so there's these pseudo rules that people will follow and that is disordered eating. We normalize that. And, and then there's this, you know, whole preoccupation with wellness and health and Mm -hmm. eating very clean and organic and only certain types of foods will I allow myself. And it's this pedestalization of morality that I'm a better person because I'm eating so clean. And that is one of the symptoms and criteria of what's called orthorexia, um, which is not in the DSM at this point in time, but eventually it will be. And mm-hmm. um, we see that a lot in you know the fitness world where you know it's it's clean eating and it's only certain things and it's really obsessive and preoccupying the person's life. And so then there's this disordered eating and then there's the clinical eating disorder. And so, you know, eating disorder, you know, we have anorexia nervosa, we have bulimia nervosa, we have binge eating disorder, and then not otherwise specified. And there's other ones too, but those are the main ones that I treat. And so there has to meet certain criteria in order to be diagnosed with those. That's a really interesting diagnosis. I've never even heard that term before. And, you know, I think that you brought up a really, really good point because I did that. I was one of those people, especially when I was doing shows, I would only eat at certain times. I was eating every two to three hours. I was weighing my food. I would weigh my protein. I was measuring out my rice and I was miserable. I was miserable. I hated how I felt. I did not like the excessive exercise. I didn't like the how low of body fat I got into. And until this day, I have not done a show in since 2016. And I'm still taking hormone treatment because Mm -hmm. of my time doing the bodybuilding shows because my adrenals and my hormones were so messed up just from my body trying to compensate and my adrenals just being in complete overload. And so now I'm to a place in my life where I still work out, I'm still healthy, but I eat what I want in moderation. But there are times where I have to check myself and I have to ask myself like, okay, you know, just if you want it, go ahead and eat it. Don't, you know, don't be in your head about it because sometimes I'll be like, okay, oh, I ate too much of this or I ate too many times out this week. I need to like dial it back. But yet I look fine. I feel fine. But it's that little trigger that still sometimes creeps up that I have to put in mind. But I, I knew when I stopped competing, looking back, I'm like, this is a problem. This is not normal behavior, but we normalize it. I'm a social worker by day. This wasn't something that I did, you know, I got paid for. I just did this to do it. And I can't believe how triggered I would get if I didn't eat the right things. It is a problem. And I would get up in the morning, I would do exercise in the morning on an empty stomach, and then I would eat what I was supposed to eat. I would go back at night and work out again. I mean, it it, it was a problem all for this one show that is going to last for two hours. And then if I didn't place or if I didn't get a trophy, I felt like I didn't look good enough. If the judges said you should have looked like this or you should have looked like that, I felt like shit for two months. And it's like, for what? It's a disorder. It was a problem. So I can only imagine, you know, what some other people are going through, especially when it comes to their relationship with food or the connections that they have with traumas and food and, you know, maybe even the anorexia or, you know, binge eating. You mentioned anorexia and you mentioned um, the binge eating, the compulsive eating. What, what are the key differences with those things? Anorexia, um, the typical, you know, symptoms that we see for 
typical anorexia is lower body weight, preoccupation with food, and there's a restriction. So they are not allowing themselves to eat. Bulimia nervosa has a purging and binging element to it where a person has um, a subjective view of themselves that is not based in reality and they will eat large amounts of food and it doesn't even have to be that large. I mean, it could be a banana. It doesn't have to be, you know, 15 bananas and they will use methods to purge that food either through throwing up or laxatives or overexercise. The key thing to know about anorexia is that we have now what's called atypical anorexia. So atypical anorexia is actually more common than anorexia nervosa, and it's just not talked about. So I can't begin to tell you how many times I have had a woman sit on my couch and she's starving herself. But because she lives in a body size that is larger, she has been told to diet and she has been told to starve herself or she should just lose the weight. When her, if you were to, if I had a blindfold on and she's telling me her symptoms, they would meet the criteria for anorexia nervosa. But because she's sitting in a body size that is as normal weight or maybe in a larger weight body, she's going misdiagnosed. And that is where weight stigma comes in. And it's so messed up because there's so many women and men out there that are being misdiagnosed or not even diagnosed and just told to lose weight. And if they just lost the weight, then these things would you know, get better in their lives. And then binge eating disorder is eating large amounts of food in a very short amount of time. And binge eating disorder is actually more prevalent than anorexia and bulimia combined. So there is a huge problem with binge eating disorder. And I will tell you, and I'm sure you know this as well, binge eating disorder is found in all shapes and sizes. In my early training, I thought that binge eating only existed in large size bodies. Because I was like, well, you, you're eating all this food. You're obviously are going to be gaining weight. There's no way that it could be or it could exist in a thin body. And that is completely false. I have very many individuals that suffer from binge eating disorder that live in thin bodies. It's so problematic because what happens is what I see is that when a person has been restricting themselves, we then become obsessed and then we overcompensate our bodies overcompensate by eating way too much because we don't know when we're going to get it again. So for instance, I'm working with a woman right now and she's been restricting. Now we're working on inviting some of her fear foods back into her diet or her eating habits or whatever you want to call it. And what happens is when she gives herself permission, let's say she's having ice cream. If she gives herself permission to eat the ice cream, she'll just eat the ice cream and it's fine, right? No big deal. She goes on with her life. But if she tells herself she can't have it, if she tells herself that she shouldn't eat it, that she'll get fat, that she's disgusting, that she's gross, and she belittles and criticizes herself, what happens is not only does she eat the ice cream, she will eat more amounts of the ice cream than she originally intended to. So the restriction combined with the judgment, combined with the criticalness, is the perfect recipe for binge eating. That's what leads a person to a binge. So in my work, there's no shame. If you want to eat pizza, girl, dig it. If you want chips, have as many as you want. Because what research shows, 
we want what we can't have. When people ask me, what's Dr. Francis, what's the most addictive food? Is it sugar? Is it pizza? Is it chips? Like, help me understand. I always tell them the most addictive food is the one you tell yourself you can't have. That's Mm. the most addictive food. The one you forbid yourself from eating. It's no different than if someone says, you know what? You can't get that guy. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have him. You can't get that job. I'm going to get it. You can't get into that school. I'm going to work my ass off to get it. Just like you said, like you, you worked so hard in that, that competition, right? Because someone probably told you, you're not going to be good enough. You're not going to make the top five. And you're like, you know what? Watch me. Yes, I will. And you worked and you worked and you worked and you worked. So we, we, by human nature, we want what we can't have. But when someone gives it to us, right? Or we allow ourselves to have it, it loses the novelty. We don't want it as much. So when I'm working with someone, we make the foods available over time. And what happens is that it wears off the desire, it, it decreases and it just becomes what it is, ice cream. It just becomes a cookie. It doesn't become 12 packs of Oreos. It just becomes an Oreo or more if you want more. And I think that when you're consuming so much of your energy into one thing, it really makes me sad that energy is not being used in other places of the person's life. Like I remember for me, when I was doing those shows, I'm like, I am so consumed with what I'm eating and what time I'm going to eat. And I, I would literally not go out with other people or not do certain social activities because my life was based around food. And I did that for two years. And I remember my daughter saying, mommy, when are we going to go and do fun stuff? When are you going to be done with your competition? And I look back at that. I'm like, holy shit. That was that was a problem. And you know, you you don't think it's a problem because you see these people in in that industry, in particular people who are bodybuilding, who look fit. They look like they're in shape. They have abs. They look great. But majority of them are very unhealthy. I know that it completely messed me up. It really, really did. So I those are amazing points. I mean, we really live in a society of like embracing all types of body sizes. You know, we see that with um, certain artists and certain singers. And I feel like we're we're kind of leaning more towards embracing that. But where is the difference when when we're saying, okay, we're going to embrace all types of sizes versus supporting obesity or supporting we need to live in a more healthier society. How do we balance that? Because I feel like there's like the fat shaming side and then there's a side of like, oh no, love yourself no matter what size you are. You know, do we fall in the middle? How do we find balance with that as a society? So great question. (laughs) So I don't use the word obesity. Um, It's not a neutral term. It's used to diagnose and pathologize body weight. And there's this myth that we are in complete control of our body and we're not. There's so many factors in body shape and size, such as genetics, socioeconomic factors, race, ethnicity, classism, um, access to food, trauma, I mean, there's so much there. So in obesity, to me, is in the medical field, which has severe weight stigma. So if I go in to a doctor's office, I, I mean, people can't see me, but I'm thin, privileged, I'm white privilege, I'm cisgender. And so if I go into you know, a doctor's office and I'm complaining of a you know, earache or sore throat, um, I'll probably get an antibiotic and, and they'll be like, okay, carry on your way. If a, a woman in a large size body goes into a doctor's office, she's going to be recommended a diet. 
Um, and we know this. Um, she's going to be weighed and she's going to be stigmatized and basically fat shamed for her body shape and size. So I don't use the words obesity. I use the phrase lives in a larger size body. Just like I would describe someone with, you know, she has brown hair. Right. So it's a feature. It's it's not a condition. And so I am a health at every size practitioner. I believe that there is a health at every size. And when we look at the research and there's so much history that people just honestly don't know. Um, and if you're if anyone is interested in learning more about the origins of understanding weight stigma, um, I do recommend Christy Harrison's anti-diet book. I think she does an excellent job of covering that. But one of the things that is was noted was the National Institute of Health in the 1990s, just overnight, just, just changed the BMI and lowered it. So basically meaning that people that weren't obese going to bed were then identified as obese waking up. And the, the people that were funding this were not only part of the World Health Organization, but were being funded and making money from weight loss companies. And so what we see is that there's a tremendous amount of uh, businesses uh, and companies that profit off of the industry of selling weight loss. And that's why these categorizations exist in the first place. The BMI, just to give you a little bit of history about that, I call it the bullshit index because it is BS. Um, it wasn't even meant to be used for what we use it for today. It was developed by you know someone that was an astronomer and it was based on wealthy white men. And it does not take into consideration body composition, bone density, socioeconomic factors, changes in shape and size that can happen due to you know growth, stressors, trauma. And so when any, if anyone that I work with, whether it be a psychiatrist, an OBGYN, a trainer, a licensed therapist, if they bring out the BMI, I'm done. <laughs> I don't even work with you because clearly it says to me that you don't understand the origins of the BMI that are also uh, have the intersections of white supremacy. And if you want to learn more about that, I, I suggest people read the book um, by Sabrina Strings, The Origins of uh, Racism, um, Fearing the Black Body. It's an incredible, incredible book. I don't believe that there is an obesity pandemic. I, I believe that there is a, a, a weight stigma ep epidemic. And research consistently shows that fat shaming is way more problematic than any type of medical health issue. I've had plenty of males that I work with that live in thin bodies that were not diagnosed with sleep apnea because the, the, the research says that sleep apnea only exists in um, large bodies, and that's not true. And I've, I've had many people be not diagnosed with diabetes because they live in thin bodies. So there's just, there's just so much there. Um, Dr. Lindo Bacon has another great book called Health at Every Size. That's a wonderful resource for anyone that's wanting to understand you know weight stigma in the medical field as well. So- I hope that helps people. A, that was an amazing, amazing answer. I, I learned a lot. That blows my mind that there's those connections with even the racial connections and the profits and the bias. That that blows my mind because I was in the Marine Corps and I have a lot of female veterans that listen to this podcast too. And when we are 
in the military, we have to have certain height and weight standards. And the BMI that they go by is complete bullshit because you could have male or female who is fit, who is in shape, but yet they're considered fat because they're out of standards for their BMI or they're not taping out. It is a complete just crock of shit in my opinion. And people will lose their income. They can lose their rank. They can lose so much that stems on this, but women are supposed to be a certain size and you only have a certain amount of time after you have a child to get within those height and weight standards. But the standards are are really, they're crap because even just depending on your your racial background, your body size, your body type, forget if you're in line with, you know, running enough or doing enough sit-ups or pull-ups. If you even if you do all of that, if you're not meeting those standards, you're you can you won't pick up rank or you can't do other things. It's complete crap. So even the standards in the military are like that. And there's so much that needs to change. You you brought up so many good points as well. And another thing that, that makes me wonder about is the connection when it comes to body image and childhood. Because even before social media, I think that body image issues have existed. Social media has made it 10 times worse. But do you think that there's a connection with how someone grows up as a child or what they see and the connection that they have with body image? Or is there a connection with you know how we view our mothers or the lack of having a mother around? Absolutely. Absolutely. So some of the things that I hear from parents, one of the number one questions I get asked from moms is how do I make sure my, my daughter has a good body image? And really what's underneath that question is how do I make sure my daughter doesn't hate her body? Like I've learned to hate mine. Mm, That makes me teary eyed. (laughs) Yeah. And the answer is the same every single time it starts with you. So children learn through social modeling, monkey see monkey do. So you brought up the example of your daughter, you know, then questioning her own stomach. That's exactly what happens. So when a, when she, when a daughter sees a, a mother, you know, grimacing at herself or pinching her body fat or stepping on a scale or sighing over her weight and shape, it's not that the daughter looks at her and thinks to herself, oh, my mom's gross or my mom's ugly. My mom's fat. My mom's, un- my mom's unattractive. That's not at all what happens because in, in a daughter or child's eyes, their mother is the epitome of beauty, is the epitome of grace. It's that they question themselves because they see that their body looks like their mom's body. So if my mom hates her stomach and I have the same stomach as my mom, then that must mean that my mom doesn't like my stomach. And I need to change my body. I always talk with the mothers about what are you doing in the home that you may not honestly have awareness around, right? That you are, you know, promoting diet culture. You are promoting a negative body image because of your own struggles with your body. And so, you know, I work a lot with that. And in general, in my home, all foods are available. <laughs> there's no food off limits. There's, there's, you know, the typical like carrots, broccoli, celery, you know, veggies. We've got the snacks of the chips and the cookies and the processed crap. And we've got the, you know, ice cream. And, you know, it's amazing to me because I didn't grow up that way. I mm-hmm. grew up with foods being, you know, uh, hidden, uh, secret eating, um, 
binge eating, you know, you've got to hide the M&Ms you're eating, uh, leaving wrappers underneath the bed or tucked into the mattress or in the the, the nightstand drawer. Um, I would go over to my friend's house who had all the little like hostess cupcake stuff. And I would literally just binge in her pantry and her mom walk in and she'd be like, are you okay in here? Are you, are like, you eating no, at home? Right. I'm like living my best life. you have life. food like, in your home? <laughs> right. Right. We didn't have that in my home. It was very uh, scarce. So I really work um, with my kids in making foods available. I didn't even own a mirror for probably the first six years of their life. We just didn't have one. I mean, we had a mirror like for my face, but I didn't have a full length body mirror. I don't own a scale. There's no scales in my house. I don't have magazines come to my house, you know, depicting ads of weight loss. Um, I just, I, I clear out diet culture and, 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 mm-hmm. Thankfully, my husband does too, you know, kind of commenting about, you know, meeting the the BMI criteria. My husband is um, Native American and he's a strong, tall man and he would fall under obese category. That's not him. And even if he did, I mean, like he would be limited in healthcare. He'd be limited in uh, access to housing. He'd be limited in, in health insurance. And so there's... There's so much stigma around that, but it's critical to have a house where we don't focus on how our body looks. We focus on our lives. You talked about, you know, how when you were in the fitness industry, you know, you missed out on so much life. And that's exactly what diet culture is. Diet culture is the life thief. It takes away from creating meaning and value and wonderful connection with others because we're so focused on what am I going to eat? How am I going to get rid of it? Going home, not going out. You know, I can only eat. It's so rigid, right? So when we're moving through diet culture and, and leaving diet culture, it's all about giving ourselves unconditional permission of radical self-love. One of my favorite books um, is by Sonia Renee Taylor, The Body is Not an Apology. Um, she's just a beautiful light in this world. And I, I encourage anyone who's looking to get more and understanding radical self-love um, to, to get that, that book. It's all about balance, right? I think that when I started balancing food and started balancing the things that I was doing and not revolving things around what I was eating, I started to feel healthier just mentally and more physically. And I love the points that you brought up with, you know, how our children look to us as kind of like, you know, you're right. They see us every day and they do look at us as like the epitome of who they might become. And it makes me think about my relationship with my mom and I don't have a good relationship with her. And and when I look back, it's not that food was restricted, but she would say, you know, you can't eat this. Or you, and I was a very picky, picky eater. But I remember my mom was always very pretty. Like she was always she, – she was very beautiful. You know, everybody – when I'd go to, she'd go to my school, they're like, that's your mom. I'm like, eh, yeah, that's my mom, <laughs> you know, or like the boys. I'm like, just don't, don't even, she's my mm-hmm. mom. Stop. So I was always used to that. And I wonder if that trickled over to me because I am very, I, I do like to take care of myself. I'm not a vain person, but I, I do like to get Botox. I have had my boobs done. I have done things to enhance my beauty. Um, I don't think you know, when I look back at it, I was never like, okay, I'm, it's not good enough or I don't like what I did. I don't necessarily have regrets, but I do sometimes wonder how that translates to my daughter 
she sees that I do these things. She sees that I'm huge into skincare, that I that I care about how I look, probably more than the average person. And I do sometimes wonder how that is going to trickle over to her or how I can better assist her to be accepting of who she is. But it's like, well, how do I support that when I'm trying to enhance who I am for obvious reasons of you know, I think it, I think instinctively we as humans want to find a mate and whether this goes back to our instincts of trying to look better to find a mate, I think that's really where the body image stuff comes from instinctively. But obviously we live in a generation of social media that enhance, of, enhance the reasons why we want to look better. And I, I just hope that I can better support her as she gets older too. But these are great points to really think about. You mentioned something on your Instagram that I saw about body neutrality. What is this concept what are ways someone can adopt these methods? I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Um, but how can they adopt these methods for a more healthy body image? So body neutrality is a great term. When I'm working with someone and they have been hating their bodies, they have been at war with their body, they don't want to exist in their bodies. The concept of loving, let alone liking their bodies, is very foreign it's just too, it's just not accessible, right? Um, because society has told them their body is fat, unacceptable, unworthy. Their dad has said, you need to lose the weight. Their mom has said, you know, you need to take care of that skin. So there's been comments that they have been subjected to. And so when a person is trying to, when we are exploring that relationship with their body, there's just so much compassion that is needed, that they are not to the point where they can, they can even really feel okay in their body. So I don't present this false narrative that you're going to wake up one day and you're going to love your body. When I listen to Sonia Renee Taylor, who talks about radical self-love, I think that that is the goal, right? Like that is the, the pinnacle but to me, in my work, that takes a lot of time and effort. And if you, if we can achieve that, that's like the holy grail, right? And and it's necessary to achieve it, according to Sonia, based on a lot of her work. And so I'm just going to kind of leave that there. In my work, I first try to get people into body neutrality, which really means feeling neutral about your body. It's not that I have fat arms. I have human arms. It's not that I've got big legs. I have legs that help me to walk, to stand, to climb, to run, to kick. So it's moving away from describing your body in aesthetic terms and focusing on what is my, what does my body help me to do? Right? Like I don't have a fat stomach. I have a stomach that helps me digest food that, you know, help me birth my children that, um, you know, where my gut instinct goes, where my belly laugh comes from. Maybe my nose is, you know, part of my heritage and my ethnicity. And I want to preserve that ethnicity and pass that down to my children. And my nose has smelled the ocean air. And, you know, if we've, if you've been someplace like to me, like I play tennis my entire life. So I love the smell of like opening a fresh can of tennis balls. It's weird, but I do. Um, <laughs> so like that's, you know, that's where we appreciate what our body 
can do for us. And it does so much for us that we just take for granted. You know, it's kind of like when you have a paper cut on your pinky and you don't really realize how much you use that pinky. But then when you get the paper cut, you're like, oh my God, I, I feel the paper cut all the time now. It's like, okay, you know, now you appreciate that pinky when you didn't even know that you were really using it that much. So body neutrality is just shifting away from body hatred and body dissatisfaction and moving into a neutral place to get you to then a place of body satisfaction or, and then radical self-love. I love that. It almost feels like it's got like a cognitive behavioral component to it as well, kind of shifting that mindset and really shifting it to a mindset of gratitude. And, and that's what I hear. It's, it's really shifting and focusing on gratitude and being grateful for your body, being grateful for the things that your body does for you. I love that. So what do you think that we need to do better as a society to kind of culturally change the toxicity surrounding body image? Oh gosh, do you have another hour? <laughs> <laughs> if you could if you could sum it up, you know, as as a society, yeah, it's it is really hard to answer in one question. But maybe what are some key things that or key takeaways that we need to change as a society to change how or even just how we view body image as a culture? Well, to me, there needs to be so much more education about the origins of fat phobia and weight stigma. Uh, Aubrey Gordon, she has a podcast called The Maintenance Phase. Um, it's a great podcast that talks a lot about like even like The Biggest Loser or the documentary Supersize Me or um, Fat Camps. There's just a lot to learn. There's a lot that we don't know because we've never been taught about it. So mm -hmm. I think from a society, yeah, we need to change the, you know, weighing children in schools. I'm completely against that. Um, children should not be weighed at all in school. And I don't even really think they need to be weighed at a doctor's office unless there's some kind of surgical procedure that's happening. Like when I take my kids into their pediatrician, they're not weighed and they're, you know, we don't need to weigh them. They're fine. They're growing. They're, you know, I'm on it. Yeah. So I just, things like that, I think we need to, to help access to food, take racism out of food, stop demonizing certain foods, making them not this whole moral value of good versus bad. Science Food Babe does a great job. She's on uh, Instagram. She does excellent work around that. I think from there, like there's, you know, from a societal, you know, obviously, helping people that exist in large bodies have supports in the medical industry. One of my patients is going into a doctor's appointment. I don't care if it's your dentist appointment. I'm there to advocate for them. I am there to support them. Um, we're not talking about their weight and shape and size. We're, we're not making comments about weight loss or weight gain. So I think from a society, I'm obviously having better, you know, you know, if we can have safeguards around social media, those are the main ones. We have such a long way to go. And, you know, it's crazy that we as a society value these things that are so superficial and yeah. it's sad. And I, I feel like as much as I want to have an optimistic view, I feel like it's, we're such a long way from making those changes, at least in our culture. I can't speak for other countries, but I feel like at least, you know, for American culture, it is filters and social media. We yeah. live in a filtered generation, unfortunately. What advice would you give to your younger self? I know that you mentioned that you struggled with body mm -hmm. image issues and, you know, your own eating disorders. If you could give any advice to your younger self, knowing what you know now and helping the people that you helped, what would you say to your younger self? 
um, that your pain will be someone's uh, purpose. Like you're like, it'll help you. Like the, the pain that you're experiencing right now will help serve those that are hurting that you're, you're, that I needed to go through that. I needed to experience what I experienced in order to honestly, just even be sitting here today talking with you that it created a huge sense of empathy for persons that I would not have had had I not gone through it. I don't look back. I used to, trust me, I used to look back and be super critical and feel shame around my eating disorder and what I did and what I believed and what I promoted. You know, there's definitely was this rhetoric that was, you know, food is fuel and that's what it's there for. You know, everything in, you know, moderation or, you know, sugar's bad. I look back and I think, gosh, like I was so in diet culture and I didn't even know I was in diet culture. And there's nothing wrong with food being fun, satisfying. I'm bored, you know, <laughs> like I'm lonely and I, or this is going to taste good, or I want to celebrate a birthday, um, using it to, you know, cope with grief and loss. I mean, that's what we do. When someone passes away, what do we do? We bring them food. We celebrate a birthday. What do we do? We eat cake. We are having Thanksgiving, we eat turkey, unless you're a vegetarian. So, I mean, everything's centered around food. So there's nothing wrong with that. Um, there's nothing wrong with eating too much and being like, oh my gosh, I ate so much and not shaming yourself about it. I think I would tell myself, you know, you're going to help and you're going to serve. And that's really what it's about. To me, I look at it as it's my way of serving. It's my way of having that God confidence that what I say it's it's not it's it's not about me trying to control the narrative. It's it's about you know, allowing my purpose to come through what I share. And that comes from my belief in, you know, my faith and my higher power and just entrusting that and, and learning to look at the mistakes I've, I've made along the way and learn rather than thinking I should always have the answer. Well, thank you for sharing your story and thank you for what you do because we need more clinicians like you to advocate and to educate because I think that the more that we have people like you educating society corporations, you know, people in those industries, the better we can help serve others. So thank you so much. And and thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so humbled. Um, for those that are listening, I, I'm also going to link where they can follow you. But what are you doing these days? And where can people follow you if they want to learn more? Yes. So I'm on Instagram. That's probably the best place for people to, you know, access the material that I share. And I put a lot of research out there and mental health around body image and uh, self-worth. And then I also have mindful messages, which are free text messages to a person's cell phone that are just inspiration tips of you know, coping tools that a person can use to help aid in their mental health and they're free. And, you know, cause not everybody needs to be on social media in order to get help. And so, um, I had a friend pass away from suicide a couple of years ago and that really rocked my world. And I thought to myself, well, I know he wasn't on social media, but what if he got, if, we, if he would have gotten a text message, you know, I don't know if it would have saved his life. Maybe it would have bought him some time. And so that's where the mindful messages came from. So they're just acts of, of love and gratitude and, 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 you know, tools to help a person so they can access that as well. So, yeah. Love that. And I'll link everything for everyone to follow you. So thank you. Thank you. I'm so humbled. I appreciate you. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Until next time, see you on the next episode of Diary of an Empath.